0: And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Acts, chapter number 14. Acts chapter number 14 this morning. I want to share with you from God's Word about the first missions conference. The first missions conference out of Acts chapter number 14. You say, where in the world do you see a missions conference in Acts 14? Well... Paul goes and he shares the gospel, the first missionary journey. We're going to talk about the rest of that today in Acts chapter 14, but look down at the end of the chapter, Acts 14, starting in verse 26. When Paul and Barnabas sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. And when they were come, they gathered all the church together, and they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there they abode a long time with the disciples. So Paul comes and he gives the church of Antioch that had commissioned them and sent them a report about what God had done. Sounds like a missions conference to me. So this morning we're gonna talk about the first missions conference out of Acts chapter number 14. But before we dive into the text of God's word this morning, let's go ahead and pray, ask him to help us and uh, as we study his word together this morning. Lord, I pray that you would guide our time in your word this morning. This is very simple thoughts out of Acts chapter 14. But I believe that if we take these things and genuinely apply them to our lives, We could change ourselves, not we can't change ourselves, you'd change us. You would change us. You would work in our church. You would work in our community. You could change the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. And so I pray that this morning that you would help me to rightfully divide the word of truth. I pray that you would help us to listen with open hearts and with open minds ready to take the principles taught this morning, not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of it. That we would take what is presented, that we would put it into practice, that we would grow closer to Christ as a result, that we would see people transformed by the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would be transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and then that they would continue to walk as you would have them to walk. This can only be done through you and by you. So Father, I pray that you would help us this morning as we humbly approach the text. Guide us, lead us, direct us. We'll give you the honor and glory for it because you're the one that deserves it. We ask this in your name, amen. In the summer of 2014, it was actually right before Angela and I moved to Texas. Uh, like literally, we, 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 had the opportunity, we had the opportunity to go and participate in a missions trip to the country of Ethiopia in Africa. We went with Maranatha Baptist University, and uh, you can see us in there. I look a lot younger there than I do now. And uh, so we went and uh, literally got back from our trip. The next day, we loaded up our car, packed up, and started driving to Texas. Really quick turnaround. But we had the opportunity to spend two weeks in the country of Ethiopia, Working in an orphanage with victimized and marginalized children. It's a life-changing experience. I saw some things there that I don't know I would, if I would see anywhere else. Um, there were two girls that were rooming together in the orphanage there. One was blind and one was dyslexic. So when it came to the time, devotional time in the evening when they would study the Bible together, the girl who was blind would take her Braille Bible and read God's Word to the girl who was dyslexic. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'd never seen anything like it before. There was another girl there in the orphanage who one evening her uncle had come home intoxicated and cut off a portion of her arm with a machete. She was taken in there in the orphanage. And I have never seen a child with the joy of the Lord like I had in that girl. And the missionaries who were there in the orphanage had taught her how to care for some of the infants that were there with one arm. She could hold them. She could feed them, and she loved serving in that way. Unbelievable. Just some incredible things that I saw there that I don't know if I'd be able to see anywhere else. And Angela and I had sent out some support letters. We had asked people to give and to help send us on that trip. And when we got back, we loaded up our car, we started driving. And my dad, you guys know, most of you know my father, he's a pastor in central Illinois. And there were many people from his church that had supported us and helped us be able to go. So we went a little bit out of our way. We drove from northern Wisconsin at the time, and we drove down to my father's church in central Illinois. And it was a Sunday night. We had the opportunity to get up and show some pictures and give a report of things that we had seen. We had the opportunity to tell about what God had done. There were some children. We had the opportunity to run a vacation Bible school in the orphanage while we were there, and we saw several children come to Christ. We had the opportunity um, to participate in communion on a Sunday morning uh, with, some of the church, uh, with some of the children there in the orphanage. That was, a, that was a special thing. We drank a lot of really great coffee, which was also a blessing. Right, so there this, uh, we, had, we had a great time. It was a life-changing trip, life-changing opportunity. We came back. We had the opportunity to report, and we shared, we shared about what we had seen, what God had done, and what we had learned as a result. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to, from the text of Acts 14, is to give you Paul's reports, what I believe he told the church of Antioch when he got up and shared about what God had done. When he got back from the trip and stood in front of the congregation, based on the text of Scripture, what was Paul's report at the First Missions Conference? And I think it's one that speaks to the testimony of the power of the gospel and of the grace of God. So the first thing I want to show you out of the text is that God led the apostles on the journey. God led the apostles on the journey. In order for me to, I just want to recap really quickly. Pastor Will's done a great job over the last three weeks expositing Acts 13. But let me just give you the quick rundown from the time that they leave Antioch until now. Okay, so starting in Acts chapter 13 and verse 4, we see that Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch and they sail to the island of Cyprus. And while they're on the island of Cyprus, they preach the gospel and many Jews and Gentiles come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And if you remember, while they're on the island of Cyprus, um, they're going and there's a Roman governor on the island, Sergius Paulus, and he expresses an interest in the gospel. And there's a sorcerer there, elements who tries to withstand Paul. And Paul rebukes him and blinds him. And as a result of Paul's ministry, Sergius Paulus accepts Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. God does a great ministry on the island of Cyprus. And then they sail and they get into Pamphylia. They go up to the city of Antioch. And that's what we talked about last week, a different city of Antioch. This is Antioch of Pisidia. And in Antioch of Pisidia, Paul preaches to many and Jews and Gentiles alike come and they accept the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. But then Jews who refused to accept Jesus as the Messiah got jealous and they got envious and they persecuted Paul and Barnabas and they drove them out of the city of Antioch. So after Paul and Barnabas leave that city, they go and they travel to the city of Iconium. And that's where we pick up our narrative in Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. So I want to read that to you. Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. This is what the text says. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. But... Unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, and they made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time, therefore, abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace, and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, and part held with the Jews, and part with the apostles. And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it, and they fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and unto the region that lieth round about. And there they preached the gospel. I have a map up here. It might be a little hard. It might be a little hard to see. I also know, like last week when Pastor Will put a map up here, he was able to point and show you where everything is. I'm not that tall. I can't quite get as high. And I resisted the urge to get a step stool. All right, well, I just was not going to do that. Okay, but but if you can see, okay, so you can see that after Cyprus, they go and they sail. Antioch is at the very top. And then it's a 90-mile journey southeast to Iconium. And so Paul and Barnabas made that journey, and they come into the city. And there they go, as was their practice. They go into the synagogue first and preach to the Jews, and then they preach to the Gentiles as well. And there are Jews and Gentiles alike that come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But the text says that the city was divided. So you have those that believe and those that do not. You have unbelieving Jews who refuse to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Messiah. You have pagan Gentiles who refuse to give up their idolatry and their sinful practices. And together, those Jews and Gentiles band and they work together to drive Paul and Barnabas out of the city of Iconium. This wasn't a sanctioned attack on Paul and Barnabas. This was mob violence. The Gentiles were upset that their simple practices were under attack, and the Jews were upset that Paul and Barnabas were preaching Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so they worked together to drive the apostles out of the city. But God still did a great work there, and many were saved. But when the mob violence started and they sought Paul and Barnabas to stone them, they realized that they couldn't safely stay in the city, so they leave and they travel. 20 miles south to the city of Lystra. And this is the longest section. This is the longest section in, the, uh, in chapter 14. It runs from verse 8 all the way down to verse 20. And I want to read this whole set, these 13 verses. Okay, so hang with me. But I want you to get the flow of the entire text because what happens in the city of Lystra is truly phenomenal. All right, this just kind of blows my mind every time that I read this. So I just want to read these 13 verses. You listen as I read. Luke's account of what happens in the city of Lystra. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on thy feet. And he leapt and he walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in the speech of Laconia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercury because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garland unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. Which, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and they ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, in that he did good, and he gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people, that they had not done sacrifice unto them. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And with these, oh, sorry, verse 20. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Man, what a whirlwind in the city of Lystra. So what happened was, is that Lystra is a Roman military colony with a soldier's road that connected it to Antioch. So Antioch, and Lystra are both Roman colonies in the region. And there was a Roman military highway that connected the two. That could also help explain why Jews from Antioch and Iconium traveled so far to persecute Paul in Lystra. There was an easy road between the two. But there was no synagogue in the city of Lystra. There's a very small Jewish population. We know there was a little bit of a Jewish population because there was a young man that lived in the city of Lystra named Timothy. Who we know is a half Jew, and he probably accepted Christ during this time. But there was no synagogue, so Paul and Barnabas go into the city. They begin to preach to the pagan Gentiles who were there. This colony, the city of Lystra, was founded by Roman military veterans, and so there was not a there was not a gospel witness. There was not a Jewish influence. And that's why when Paul starts to teach these individuals, when Paul tries to restrain them from offering sacrifices, he doesn't start with Yahweh God. He doesn't start with their understanding of who God is. He has to go back to the fact that there is one God who is creator. There's no no Christian, no Jewish, no real uh, monotheistic influence at all in the city of Lystra. These are pagans that live there. And so Paul comes in and he begins to preach. And there's a lame man there who has never walked. And Paul and Barnabas comes up and Paul speaks to him. And Paul says, hey, you are healed. And this man leaps up and begins to run around. And when the pagan Romans see that, they go, whoop, gods are here, right? And they go and they begin to run out and they go to worship Paul and Barnabas as God. The words used here to describe, these are out of the Roman pantheon. You might know these gods better from the Greek pantheon as Zeus and Hermes. Right? Zeus and Hermes. And they come and they say, look, these are gods that have come down. They've descended to us. But they were speaking in their own dialect; They weren't speaking in Greek. So as all this commotion is going on around them, Paul and Barnabas are confused. They're walking around going, what is happening? And all of a sudden they see these garland wreaths come out and they see these bulls that are being led for a sacrifice. And all of a sudden they understand what's going on and they run out and they begin to tear their clothes and they say, stop, stop, stop. Don't do that. Remember a couple chapters earlier when Herod, they told Herod, he has the voice of a God. And what did Herod do? Herod accepted that worship. And what happened to Herod? He died and worms ate him. I don't think Paul and Barnabas wanted to experience that. (laughs) I don't think they wanted that experience. So Paul and Barnabas go and say, whoa, 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 no, 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 stop. And they go and they're tearing their clothes in protest, begging the people to stop. And Paul and Barnabas begin to preach a message here. And it's an incomplete message because they're cut off by the people. They don't have a chance to finish it. All that they're able to get through, it starts in verse 14, but all they're able to get through in this message It's the fact that God is creator of all life. He says that in verse 15. He says, we serve the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things therein. In verse 16, he talks about the fact that God is merciful and he shows forbearance. I'm glad that we serve a God that is forbearing. And I'm glad that we serve a God that is merciful. Look at verse 16. Who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. He says, look, you have walked in your idolatry long enough. And God has been merciful to you in spite of that. But now, but now I am telling you who the one true God is. And look at what he says in verse 17. He says, God, the one true God is revealed through his providential works. He says, nevertheless, He left not himself without witness. He says, God has revealed himself. How? He did good. He gave us rain. He gave us fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. God is revealed in creation. God is revealed through the providential acts that he does. But Paul is cut off. He's unable to continue. If you want to see what this message looks like fully fleshed out, we'll see it in a couple weeks in Acts 17. Paul goes and he preaches on Mars Hill. Do you remember that account? He comes and he sees an idol to the unknown God. And Paul says, I can tell you who that is. But he starts the same way. He starts with God as creator and how God has revealed himself. But there he's able to actually finish his message. So if you want to see what it looks like fully fleshed out, go and read Acts 17 and you can see it there. But here Paul is cut off by the people. Now, there's a tremendous shift that happens between verse 18 and verse 19. And it it just turns on a dime. In verse 18, they're being venerated as gods. They can barely hold the people back from offering sacrifices. And then in verse 19, what happens? Jews show up. Angry, envious Jews show up from Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium. And it says they persuade the people. I don't know exactly what was said, It could be that the people were disillusioned with Paul and Barnabas because they thought that, hey, if they're gods, they should bring material blessings with them, right? They should bring rain. They should bring food. They should bring blessing. And when that didn't immediately happen, they could have become disillusioned. It could be that they were upset that they refused their sacrifices. It could be that they were angry with the message. I don't know. But I do know that these angry and envious Jews came and they persuaded the people of Lystra to turn against Paul and Barnabas. And there was a mob that broke out as a result and they take Paul and they stone him and they drag him outside of the city and they leave him for dead. One minute being venerated as a god. The next minute being stoned and left for dead. But then an incredible thing happens. We know that Paul had success preaching the gospel because look at what it says in verse 19. Who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city. Verse 20, how be it as the what? Disciples. As the disciples. So Paul and Barnabas had good ministry in Lystra. They had seen people saved and coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as Paul's broken body lay outside of the city gates those individuals to whom they had had ministry came and they checked on the apostle Paul. And while Paul was there clinging to life, God providentially worked in his body. And God raised Paul. Look at what it says in verse 20. It says, as they stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city. Can you imagine what that looked like? When you have Paul laying there and all the disciples coming to check, right? And they're looking at him. And all of a sudden, Paul stands up. I don't know if you would cheer or scream at that point. I really I really don't know. I don't know what you would do. But Paul stands up. Woo, he's healed, man, right? Probably a little bit of both. Uh, but we have Paul, and he stands up, and he is, he is healed. And we know that he's healed because he and Barnabas know that they can't stay in the city of Lystra, so they leave, and they have to make the 60-mile trek to the city of Derby. That would have taken several days, if not weeks. So we know that God healed him because he was able to make this journey down to the city of Derby, and we get a very short overview of their ministry in Derby. We see this in verse 21, um, when they had preached the gospel to that city, that's the city of Derby, and it taught many. They returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They had very good ministry in Derby. Now there's something that I thought was interesting. If you notice from the city of Derby up here. Um, just to the southeast of Sicilia, there's the city of Tarsus. Do you remember where Paul was from? Paul was from Tarsus, okay? he's known as Saul of Tarsus. It struck me when I was looking at this map that Paul, after they were done with Derby, could have traveled home. He could have gone to his hometown. And I don't know about you, but after traveling for a long period of time, there's nothing quite like coming home and sleeping in your own bed, Right? He could have gone home, he could have slept in his own bed, could have had a hot meal, could have rested a little bit, hopped on a ship, had a very easy journey back to Antioch and been done. But he did it. Do you see what it said there in the text? What did he do? Verse 21, he returned again to what? Lystra. What had just happened in Lystra? The man got stoned there. And he turns around and walks back inside the city. And he goes to Iconium, where he had been chased out. And he goes back to Antioch, where he had been chased out. Why in the world would he do that? Because God not only led the apostles, God also worked through the apostles on this journey. God worked through the apostles on this journey. You say, how did God work through the apostles on the journey? Well, I think that there are four things that God did as he worked through the apostles on this journey. First of all, there were many individuals, both Jews and Gentiles alike, who believed on Christ as the gospel was faithfully proclaimed. So there were many who believed on Christ. That's what God did. And God worked for Paul and Barnabas and in Paul and Barnabas and then through Paul and Barnabas. And as they went and faithfully proclaimed that Jesus Christ died on the cross and he rose again and he took your sin and he gave you his righteousness as he preached the message of the gospel, people got it and they believed. We see that in verse one. It came to pass in Iconium, they went together in the synagogue and they spake. And a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. Look at verse 3. Long time therefore abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord. Look at verse 7. There sat a certain man. Oh, that was verse 8. Look at verse 7. And there, there they preached the gospel. Look at verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel in that city and taught many. What did God do? God saved a lot of people. As a result of the faithful proclamation of the gospel by Paul and Barnabas. But not only did many come and accept Christ, also, there were new saints who were discipled in Christ. There were new saints who were discipled in Christ. I see that in verse 22. It says that they traveled through these cities. What did they do? Confirming the souls of the disciples. Listen, new believers in Christ need to be discipled. New believers need to be discipled. Colossians 2.6 tells us, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. But how do new believers learn to walk in Him? Well, Matthew 28, 19, and 20 tells us that we have the responsibility to go and teach new believers to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. We have the responsibility to help confirm the souls of the disciples. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. But third, I also see that the church was encouraged to be faithful to Christ. The church was encouraged to be faithful to Christ. Look at verse 22. Again, it says, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Listen, new believers need to be encouraged. And the cities that Paul was leaving these new believers in They had already firsthand seen persecution. They had stood around and viewed Paul's broken body after he had been stoned. They had already seen the ramifications of placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Do you think these people needed to be encouraged? Absolutely. And Paul and Barnabas decide to take the long, dangerous trek back so they can encourage new disciples in Christ. I'm, I'm quite confident that Paul wasn't praying to be stoned and persecuted and chased from city to city. I don't, I don't think Paul prayed that when he woke up in the morning, okay? I know, like, when I get ready to go on a trip, I ask the Lord for protection. I ask the Lord that the connections all go smoothly. I don't ask the Lord that I would get, you know, that my layover would be extended. I don't ask the Lord for missing parts on the plane. I don't, you know, I don't do though. I don't do those things. I remember when we were flying back from Ethiopia, okay, so we were in we were in Addis Ababa the capital, the capital. And there was one flight from Addis Ababa to Cairo a day. and that flight just happened to be at like 4:45 in the morning, right? So we get there, we're at the airport at like 2 a.m. We go through, we get through customs, we get through all that stuff. We're getting ready. We're in line to go walk on the plane, right? And the line's walking, and all of a sudden everything stops. And that's never a good sign. So we're standing there waiting, 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 and all of a sudden they start bringing people off the plane. And that's never a good sign. So then we're like, what what in the world is going on? Well, we found out that the food cart that was loading food onto the plane, somebody forgot to drop like somebody forgot to drop the cart down when they were loading it, and they actually hit the wing of the plane with the cart. And uh, so because of that, they went and inspected it, and they were not they were like, "No, we can't fly it. We don't know if it's safe. So now, We get to hang out for an extra day. Angie and I were supposed to get home and have like a day to kind of lay low a little bit before we jumped in the car and started driving. And uh, so now we found out that, nope, not gonna happen. So we have to wait an entire day all the way around 24 hours before we can finally get on that plane and start the long trek home. And uh, we don't pray for those things to happen. We don't hope that those things happen. Nobody wants to sit on an airport floor for 24 hours, right? Those things are awful. I guarantee you, Paul did not ask for persecution to happen along the way as he's journeying from city to city. And yet it did. Yet it did. And Paul also knew that he was leaving these new believers in these cities of Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. He was leaving them a place where unbelieving Jews were going to shun these believing Jews out of the synagogue. If they came in and preached that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, they were going to be shunned by their own ethnic community. And unbelieving Gentiles, or believing Gentiles who were now preaching that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and they were preaching against the sinful and pagan practices of the world around them, were going to be socially excluded by their friends and by their family members. Paul knew that these individuals were going to need to be encouraged. So in spite of the persecution, in spite of the trials, Paul goes to encourage the saints in Christ. Now, I just want to make make one quick point here. You say, well, man... Sometimes it's just really hard in the midst of trials and persecutions to encourage other people. It's hard to feel encouraged sometimes when you're going through those difficulties. But God's grace that is supplied to us often comes within the realm of grace that he chooses to deny. Let me explain what I mean by that. Consider Paul's thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul prays three times for God to remove his thorn in the flesh. Would God have been gracious to remove Paul's thorn in the flesh? Would that have been God's grace? Yeah, absolutely. Did God choose to take away Paul's thorn in the flesh? No, he didn't. So in a sense, that's grace denied. That's God withholding that from the Apostle Paul. But why did he do that? He tells the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, my Grace is sufficient for you. In the midst of that trial, in the midst of that difficulty, in the midst of God withholding one kind of grace, God supplied another. And God gave a sustaining, enduring, preserving grace that Paul needed. And why did he do that? So that God would get all the glory. So sometimes God's withholds grace. Why did the apostle Paul have to go through this? Could God have just said, Paul, you're gonna have smooth sailing as you travel through these cities. The Jews aren't gonna pursue you for a hundred miles and persecute you from city to city. God could have absolutely done that. But God chose not to. He withheld that grace, why? To supply the grace to Paul that he needed to go and encourage these churches, to encourage them to stand firm in their faith, to encourage them to remain loyal to Jesus Christ in the midst of their difficulty, in the midst of their suffering, so that God gets all the credit. One theologian put it this way, God chooses the humble, the lowly, the meek, and the weak, so that there's never any question about the source of power when their lives change the world. Listen, sometimes God withholds grace from us, to give us the grace that we need in order to endure in the midst of the circumstances that we're in so that he can receive honor and glory and so that his work is finished. And as I was thinking about that and chewing on that, I'll just be honest with you. I need to grow in my own trust of God's wisdom. (laughs) I need to grow in my trust of God's wisdom to give me the grace that I need in the middle of the circumstances that I'm in. Sometimes my tendency is to look around and go, God, what are you doing? This is the grace that I need. And when God chooses to withhold that grace, I need to trust that God knows what he's doing and that God will give me the grace that he knows that I need in the midst of that circumstance. And I may not be the only one in the room this morning. Maybe you need to trust this morning that God knows exactly what he's doing that God is at work for you and in you so then he can work through you. And maybe you need to grow in your trust that God knows exactly what he's doing and he may be withholding one grace, yes, but he will supply the exact grace that you need in the midst of the circumstances and the trials that you're in. So the church was encouraged to be faithful to Christ. And finally, Leadership was also established to preach the gospel of Christ. Leadership was established to preach the gospel of Christ. I see this in verse 23. It says, When they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. I think it's interesting. Did you notice this? There are no pulpit committees in the church of Galatia. Okay? They, they, don't, they don't call other cities and say, hey, you guys got any available ministers that you can come and send down to help us? No, what did they do? Paul and Barnabas travel back through these cities and they identify individuals with spiritual aptitude. They identify individuals with some spiritual maturity who are able to minister the word and share it to other people. And there were no public committees in the first century they grew up leadership from within the church and then that leadership was identified and discipled and trained and encouraged so then they could minister to the word the minister of the word and encourage the church i would throw it out there to us this morning that one of our responsibilities as a local church is to identify equip and train leaders who can grow and assume leadership from our own congregation So we need to be able to identify as we disciple individuals, as we seek to help them grow in grace, as we help them as they therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. As we do those things, we should be able to identify and equip and train individuals from our own local congregation who can minister in the word and encourage the church. I think that that's our job. I think that that's the job that God has given to the local church. And I think too often we're we're quick to outsource that to other organizations. We're too quick to outsource that to other people when instead God has given us the responsibility to train and to equip right here. That's Ephesians 4.12. For the edifying of the saints for the work of the ministry. So I think that there's two pieces to that. I think, number one, I think that we need to be intentional about discipling and training the individuals that God has given us right here, right now. And God supplies everything that we need. God gives us everything that we need, and God takes care of His church. And as we disciple, and as we train, and as we equip, we have the responsibility to identify and to help individuals grow up into the leadership capacities that God has given them. And also, I think that this requires pastors to stop looking at church leadership as a stepping stone to something bigger and better, right? We need to get rid of the professional headhunter mentality within the church, and instead we need to understand that God has given us everything that we need, and we need to embrace the responsibility that God has given us to train and equip the people that are right here in this room, because God has given us everything that we need. He's given us the grace And he's given us the ability. The question is, will we go and do it? Because when I see one way that God worked through the apostles here, he worked through them to establish leadership in local churches. So God led the apostles. God worked through the apostles. I think God also taught the apostles lessons on the journey. God taught the apostles lessons on the journey. Just a couple years after this journey happened, the apostle Paul got his pen out and he wrote the letter of Galatians to these churches okay so he would have written the letters of Galatians and those would have circulated between the churches of Derby and, and Lystra and Iconium Antioch and others and so I want to I want to show you a couple lessons that I think Paul learned on this journey I'm going to validate those through the book of Galatians okay so if you have your bible put your finger in Galatians chapter one we're going to flip back and forth just slightly But I want to show you lessons that Paul learned here, and then he reiterates them to the churches as he studies through the book of Galatians. The first lesson is this. The gospel has transforming power. The gospel has transforming power. You say, where do you see this? Well, consider Paul himself. In chapter number seven, if you remember, Paul stands there, Saul at the time, he stands there and presides over the stoning of Stephen. Why was Stephen stoned? For the faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a quarter of the way through the book. Now, exactly halfway through the book of Acts, what happens to Paul? Paul is stoned. Why? For the faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a complete 180 in the life of the apostle Paul. How can that change be explained? It can only be explained to the transforming power of the gospel, working for Paul and in Paul and now through Paul. The gospel has life-transforming power. Paul articulated this in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. I told you I was going to show you this out of the book of Galatians chapter number one. All right, let me flip over there real quick. All right, in Galatians chapter one, Paul starts off his epistle to the Galatians with a proclamation of the power of the gospel. Okay, pick it up in verse one. one, one. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia, grace be unto you in peace, get this, from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself from our sins, why? That he might deliver us from this present evil world. How? According to the will of God and our Father. Why? To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the life transforming power of the gospel at work. It's easy for us to look outside the doors of our church and say the world is falling apart. And some days it feels like it is. But the problem in our own hearts, Jeremiah tells us our own hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, who can know it? But the problem in our own hearts and the problem in our world is not our government. It's not any kind of movement. It's not... Whatever, you fill in the blank. That's not the problem in our world. The problem in our own hearts and the problem in our world is sin. And the answer is Jesus Christ. And people need the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. When Paul came into these cities, right? Paul didn't go to the pagan temples and say, hey, you know, you really shouldn't be worshiping. Oh, he didn't bring up the food offered to idols issue, right? He didn't go there and say, well, you really shouldn't be eating that. Right? He, didn't go to, he didn't try to go and do behavior modification. He didn't try and go and make them more moral people. What did he do? He went and he preached the gospel. So my encouragement to you this morning would be, let's keep the main thing the main thing. So when we go into the mission field, let's stay focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's keep our ministry centered around fulfilling the great commission to which he has given us. There are lots of things that can distract us. There are lots of shiny things out there that can pull us in other directions. But if we truly believe that the gospel has life-transforming power, let's keep the main thing, the main thing. And I think that Paul understood that. And if there's anything that I think Paul learned as he went through this journey, it was that the gospel has life-transforming power. It transformed Paul and it can transform those who need Jesus. The problem in our world is sin, the answer is Jesus. The gospel has transforming power. Also, also, you and I need to get off the roller coaster of human approval. You and I need to get off the roller coaster of human approval. In the city of Lystra, one minute, Paul is being worshiped as a god. I mean, imagine what that would have been like, right? Worship as a god. Paul resisted the urge to change his Twitter handle, right? To at the real Hermes, right? He could have run around and said, hey, look at this, we're awesome, we're awesome. He could have done that. Do you think Paul was tempted? I mean, we're all humans, right? Do you think Paul was tempted? Or it could have been like, man, there's some some serious adulation going on here. Man, these people really like me. That's awesome, okay, check this out. Do you think Paul maybe was tempted to say, well, let's eat a good meal first and then let's tell them, right, about the gospel. The reality is, is that you and I, we tend to ride on the roller coaster of human approval. The question, the question becomes, how often do we serve to be noticed? The question becomes, how often do we serve to raise our church profile? How often do we serve to hear the people in this room say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Because you and I have to understand that seeking after human approval is a roller coaster because one minute Paul and Barnabas are up here and the next minute they're they're being dragged outside the city and Paul is being stoned. So up here one minute, literally one verse later, the next phrase, being stoned. If you and I try to keep people happy, you're going to be inevitably spinning, spinning in circles. Angela and I this weekend... We went and picked up a new puppy. 11 weeks old. Black Lab, Sadie is her name. Uh, She's adorable. She's also very spunky. We found out already. Um, Yeah, it's gonna be awesome. Okay, so, and my other dog is not 100% sure what to think about her yet. We're still working through some of that. So, Sadie does one thing that a lot of other puppies do. Okay, you hold something by her tail for a second. And what does she do? She tries to grab it, right? And then, You kind of move it around in a circle a little bit. And all of a sudden, what happens? She starts chasing her tail. right? She's standing in the same spot. And then what does she do? Right? She's just spinning in a circle over and over again, trying to catch something that she's never going to get. And sometimes, in the realm of human approval, you and I are like 11-week-old puppies. We're chasing things around. We're trying to find satisfaction. We're trying to catch something that we're never going to find, that we're never going to get. The roller coaster of people-pleasing inevitably leads to hurt, to stress, and to compromise. So you say, well, what then is the solution? Okay, turn back to the book of Galatians, chapter number one. Okay, there is a solution that is found in living a single-minded life. In Galatians chapter one and verse 10, listen to what Paul tells these churches. He says, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? Don't miss this. For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Paul says, look, what I'm going to do is I'm going to serve Jesus Christ. And there may be some people that like that, and that's great. And there may be some people that don't like that, and that's fine too. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to strive to please Jesus and let the chips fall where they may. You and I want to run around in circles trying to make everybody happy or do you want to focus on making one person happy? That one person being our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we serve Christ faithfully, it doesn't matter how people respond to our service. If your goal, if your goal is to be liked, you will not be a faithful Christian nor will you be a fruitful Christian because you're going to be running around trying to make everybody happy. Instead, we focus on making one person happy, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's freedom that is found in a single-minded life. Instead of the anxiety of, oh, what did this person think? Or, oh, I said this. What are they going to think about that? Or, oh, did I clean the fellowship hall well enough? Or, oh, man, you know, did, did Pastor Will see when I did that? Or, oh, man, you know, we're running around. Always trying to make people happy. I'm tired just talking through that. Instead, let's focus I'm pleasing Jesus Christ. Yeah. Let's focus on pursuing him. Let's focus on serving him. Don't aspire to be relevant. Aspire to be faithful to Christ. And then finally, I think the third lesson that Paul learned here is that great commission work is agonizingly glorious. Great commission work is agonizingly glorious. Now, glorious is the word that's in the blank there. But I also don't want you to miss the word agonizing, (laughs) because great commission work is both. You say, well, James, where where do you see that in the text? Well, I consider Paul. All right, so Paul goes and he ministers in Derby. He could go travel to Tarsus, but instead, he decides to go back to Lystra, where he just got stoned. And as Paul walks back inside the city, and he says he sees stones stacked outside the city gates that are still stained with his blood as he walks into the city to try to help ground the faith of the saints, that is agony. Paul literally, his body was broken to try to fulfill the work of the Great Commission. That's agony. But people were saved. Saints were grounded. The church was encouraged. Leaders were established. And that is the glory. A lot of times, I I like talking about what God has done, right? We share good news testimonies. We talk about people getting saved in our community. We talk about the the opportunities that we've had to disciple with people, and that's awesome. I mean, that is the glory of Great Commission work. But let's not fool ourselves. Great Commission work is also hard. There is agony that is often involved in fulfilling the Great Commission Because we live in a sin-cursed world and the reality of broken relationships and sin and people walking away from Jesus Christ grieve us. And they can leave, uh, in Paul, they left physical scars, in us, they can leave emotional scars. And if you get involved in the lives of people and if you are trying to invest in people and lead them to Jesus, it is both glorious and agonizing at the same time. And I think we need to be honest about it. I think we need to be honest about it. Paul sums it up well in his epistle to the Galatians. Paul uses to explain this. Paul uses the example of childbirth. I'm very glad that that's nothing that I ever have to experience. Okay? So Paul uses that example though. And I also think I laugh a little bit because Paul's a little out of his depth when he uses that illustration in my personal opinion, but he uses it anyway to explain what this looks like. All right, Paul never had to experience it either, but he uses this example to explain, to explain what this looks like, in Galatians chapter four, verses 19 and 20, he says this, my little children of whom I travail in birth again. That's the agony. He says, look, it's like I am in childbirth. When? Until Christ be formed in you. That's the glory. That's the glory. And sometimes discipling people, getting involved in the work of the Great Commission, sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes people stab you in the back. Sometimes people walk away. This side of heaven, we all have a tendency to lose our way. And sometimes it hurts. And yet, when we invest in the lives of people, And they begin to passionately pursue after Jesus Christ. And they begin to grow in their faith. And their lives are changed. And they are transformed by the power of the gospel. That is glorious. That's glorious. At a meeting of Baptist pastors in the late 1700s, there was a newly ordained minister who stood up to to, to argue for the value of overseas missions. And as he was about halfway through his presentation, he was rudely interrupted by an older minister who was there, who said, young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. That man's name was William Carey. And undeterred by the prevailing attitude of academia and religious institutions around him decided to start his own missionary society. And in 1792, they held their first missions conference. And in it, he stood up and he preached a message where he says, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And a year later, he was on a boat heading to India and he forever changed the modern missionary movement. And I can imagine that as Paul returned to Antioch and as he stood up and as he gave his report, it was given with much power. And it was given and the church rejoiced over how God had led them through their journey, how God had worked through them and about what they had learned as they shared the gospel along the way. And As we close today, I I wanna close three simple questions. Okay? Just trying to provoke your thinking as we get ready to leave here. Okay? Those three simple questions. First question is this. Do you believe, do you believe that the gospel has transforming power? Right? We can say it. The question is, do you live like it has transforming power? Do you, as you enter into the mission field, do you actively share the gospel with other people? That coworker, who you just look at and you say, there is no way that they will ever get saved. Do you give up on them or do you share the gospel? Do you truly believe that the gospel has life transforming power? And the way that you're living today, do you believe that the gospel changes the way that you live? Is the gospel working for you and in you and through you? From Acts 7 to Acts 14, there's a radical change in the Apostle Paul. It's a complete 180. Okay? I think we can argue that the gospel has life-transforming power. The question is, what are you doing to prove it? The second question is this. Are you serving God for his pleasure, or are you serving for the approval of others? Are you serving God's pleasure, or are you serving for the approval of others? So as you are sharing the truth with other people, are you doing it so that they think you're smart? For those of you who have children at home, your own little disciplees. Right? Are you discipling them so that they'll just behave and stop running around screaming? Or are you doing it so that God can work for them and in them and through them as they grow into the image of Jesus Christ? As you serve here in your local church, are you serving to be noticed so that people will think, man, that guy's that guy pretty good. He's got it going on. Or are you willing to come and do it whether anybody sees or not? For whom are you serving? Serving for your own pleasure or are you serving for God's? And then finally, are you actively engaging in the ministry of the Great Commission? Are you sharing the gospel with others? Are you helping to ground others in the faith? Are you taking them and saying, this is what God's word says, let me help you grow. Are you encouraging others who are going through difficult times? I guarantee you, there are individuals in this room who are going through hard times and facing difficult decisions. Are you actively engaging and encouraging those around you? The church was never intended to be a mausoleum. The church was intended to be a hospital for broken and hurting people. And there are broken and hurting people in this room today. And the question is, are you willing to engage in their life and encourage them? And are you actively seeking to identify and help train and equip and grow leaders? who can serve and minister in the word in our own local church? Are you actively engaged in the ministry of the Great Commission? I think based on the text of scripture, I think Paul's report would have looked something like that. There are some challenging thoughts in here. I mean, this isn't the most theologically deep message, but I think it's eminently practical. And I think that if we were to take the truths here and put them into practice, God can work in us, God can work in our community, God can work in our church, then God can change the world. May God help us to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are simple thoughts from the book of Acts. And yet, poignant thoughts for us as we walk out these doors and enter into the world. The world needs Jesus. We need Jesus. We need grace. We need the right kind of grace. We need the grace that we need in the midst of the circumstances that we're in right now. So we pray that you would give us grace and strength. And then, Father, I also pray that you would give us grace to share, grace to engage, grace to disciple, grace to grow, because this is what you expect of us. Father, we don't just want to be hearers of the Word. We want to be doers of it. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed and as the music plays, I would just encourage you to close with some very simple questions. If you need to do business with the Lord, if there's something in your own heart, if there's something in your own mind that you need to deal with, that you need to commit to do, let me just give you a minute in the quietness of your own heart to do business with the Lord this morning.